I think really what, like, we almost always have music at, at church, right? But really, it's not really about music. It's about being led into the presence of the Lord. And I feel like that was exactly what was done. And um, I'll say this, that last night at probably about 6 o'clock, we, well, it was before that, but we figured out that we weren't going to have music today. And I reached out to people and said, hey, is there any way we can try to figure out a combination of people to where we can have music tomorrow? Um, and so by about 6, 7 o'clock last night, all of them had kind of said, yeah, we'll figure it out. And I think they did more than figure it out. So, um, yeah, thank you. Um, I'm going to start by saying this, that if if you were kind of a, a, allowed to give one last sermon, as I was like reading back through my notes this morning, I was like, you know what, if this had to be my last sermon ever, I think this would be the one I'd go out with. So hopefully that doesn't mean anything other than just that God has <laughs> powerfully put this on my heart. Um, and this is kind of the epitome of what God has done in my own heart and that I desire that he would do in ours collectively at the greenhouse, but also um, across the church as a whole. So if you've been with us, we've been in the recent past kind of going through the book of Acts and a um, little bit of background. The book of Acts is actually a sequel book. The book of Luke is the kind of starting point. The book of Acts is kind of part two. And the book of Luke really kind of deals with Jesus and his life and his ministry and he dies and he rises again, and then the book of Acts kind of picks up, and it kind of takes it from there, and it really talks about, like, the global expansion of Christianity. Like, the message of Jesus is going out like crazy, and they're being persecuted, especially by a guy by the name of Saul, and Saul himself believes on Jesus and is baptized and is following Jesus, and, and it continues to go on that Paul, he's Saul, and he's also called Paul, that he... Uh, he and a guy by the name of Barnabas go on this missionary journey. They're telling all these people about Jesus, and there's so many cool things that are happening. And then Paul and Barnabas choose to split, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. Uh, Kevin did. And then, then Barnabas, excuse me, Barnabas goes one direction, and Saul, Paul, he takes Silas and Timothy um, and pick up Luke along the way. And they go on what is known as Paul's second missionary journey, which is what we've been kind of looking at over the past couple weeks. And so last week, if you were here, we talked about um, Acts chapter 17 and 18. What we kind of did is we took like an aerial view over, over Acts, excuse me, over 16 to 18, over Acts 16 to 18, we took kind of an aerial view, and we saw something that happened three times. We saw three people who believed were baptized with their entire family. And so we talked about that last week. We talked about baptism, and we talked about the, um, the people who, who believed felt it was so important to share this good news with their family, and we talked about the fact that it can't just start with your family. It needs to continue of being willing to share your faith with all people. And then today, we're going to kind of do the same type of thing. We're going to take an aerial view over um, Acts 17 to 19, and we're going to look for some things that are repeated. And what we'll find is that it's Paul reasoning from the scriptures. And so today we're going to really talk about what does it mean to, to, to reason from the scriptures? How was Paul to do that? And maybe kind of like what are things that characterize people who reason from the scriptures? So that's where we're headed. If you have a Bible, you can flip open to Acts chapter 17. We're going to read a handful of different pass short passages from 
um, Acts 17 to 19. So again, if you have a Bible, you can flip it open. We're going to start with Acts chapter 17, verses 2 to 4. And Paul's in Thessalonica, and he goes into a synagogue, and then this is what it says, Acts 17, 2 through 4. And Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great number of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Acts 17, 17, Paul's in Athens at this point in a city that's full of idols, and it says this, So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those that happened to be there. And then in Acts 19, says this, and he came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And lastly, Acts chapter 19, verses 8 through 10, says this, and he, Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannius. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Let's pray. God, I know that this um, is just overwhelming and overflowing in me. I pray that you would, um, through all of that, help my words be clear. I pray that through all of that, that your word would take root in the hearts of people. And God, I pray that um, would not be about persuasive words of wisdom, but a demonstration of your power. So God, I pray that the word that comes from my mouth is your word, and I pray that the Spirit will do powerful things with it. In Jesus' name, amen. So when we look through this, what's Paul doing? He's, he's reasoning from the Scriptures, but kind of what does that mean to reason from the Scriptures? If you think back to the book of Acts earlier, Acts chapter 6, they, they decide that they need to make sure that they, they devote themselves to the ministry of the Word. And so they kind of get deacons to kind of help with some things. That way they can make sure that they are um, doing the ministry of the Word. And that's really what's happening here is that Paul is, it, you, you can kind of find other adjectives to describe what they're doing. They're, he's explaining, he's proving, he's proclaiming, he's preaching, he's teaching, he's occupied with the Word. He's testifying about who Jesus is. He's speaking boldly. But ultimately, really, what is it that Paul doing is he's, he's sharing the Word with people. He's sharing about who Jesus is. And it, it sounds so much more complicated than what it is. I think really what he's doing is he's just sharing the word. And it says that it was as was his custom, that there's, there's places where it describes what he does and how often he does it. It says that he does it regularly for three Sabbaths. He does it every day. He does it every Sabbath for three months. It says he does it for a year and six months. He does it daily for two years He's doing it often. Every chance that he gets, he's reasoning from the Scriptures. He's doing it wherever he goes. He does it in 
Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and Ephesus. He does it in the hall of Tyrannius. And if you know anything about the life of Paul, this wasn't easy for him to do this. It's estimated that he, Paul, during his ministry, traveled 10,000 miles. Now, some of that's in boat, some of that's by foot, but 10,000 miles. I want you to picture this. From New York City to San Francisco is about 3,000 miles. So picture the Apostle Paul feeling so strongly about people knowing this Jesus that he, sometimes by boat, but he travels the distance from New York City to San Francisco, back to New York City, back to San Francisco. It's just this amazing thing, and it couldn't have been easy to do that. We can read throughout 2 Corinthians 11 and see that he had sleepless nights, and he was often hungry and thirsty. But with all the babies that we've had recently, most of you parents are probably like, yeah, it sounds like an everyday type of thing. But he also talks about being beaten and being stoned, being lost at sea. And again, it's like, wow. Paul was willing to go to all this effort to share this news. goes on, we can find out in Acts 28.5 that he was also bit by a poisonous snake. Now, my wife at this point in time is out. She's done. Like, she was, she was fine with the sleepless night. She was fine with no food, fine with the beating, fine with being stoned. But a snake, nope, I'm done. I don't know if there's other people like that. Amen. I hear some amens. Yeah, <laughs> I don't like snakes either. Um, we also read about Paul's life that he was deserted by many people. We can read that he had a thorn in the flesh, that he had bad eyesight, that he had physical infirmities. And he, throughout this whole thing, he kept a job to raise money to be able to do what it was that he was doing. Like, it wouldn't have been easy for Paul to reason from the Scriptures and to go to all the places that he did in order to do it. And it's kind of like, well, why did he do it? And I think that we could, we could make an argument, well, he did it because he was called. Like, God told him he had to. God told him, like, you're going to suffer, so here's go, go do it. And, and that's true, but I think that there's more to it than that. Some people might say that the reason why Paul does this, he makes this huge effort is because he felt so bad for what he had done in the past. And so he's kind of trying to make amends. But I don't really think that's what it is. I would argue that what Paul is doing is actually what all of us who are followers of Christ are called to do. What Paul is doing in here is he's seeking to give people Jesus. I would say that all of us, if we are followers of Christ, we have been commanded by Jesus in Matthew 28, 19, to go make disciples. In Acts 1, 8, we're told to be his witnesses. In John 13, 35, we're told that we should be known by our love. I think what Paul is doing is actually what all of us are called to do. What Paul is doing here is he's sharing Jesus. It's good news that is so deep in him, it's just overflowing. I can tell you this, if, if I go to a good restaurant and I talk to you the next day, you will hear about it. Because it's good news to me, because I love to eat. But what's happening with Paul is this good news is overflowing out of him. He, he considered himself to be the worst of sinners, and yet he was forgiven, and it just overflows out of him. 
And so we see Paul reasoning from the scriptures, right? That's what he's doing and what were the results in, in different places. And we see different things. In 17.4, we read this one, that there were people who were persuaded, a great many de, um, devout Greeks and not a few leading women believe. We see in 17.10 that some people wanted to hear more. We read about the Bereans, which I love, in 17.11, that they were of more noble character and they would examine the scriptures daily to see if what Paul was telling them was true. You see people respond in verse 12 of chapter 17 that many believe not a few Greek women of high standing as well as some men. And other places, it continues to go on. And in verse 19, or chapter 19, verse 10, we read, it says that all the residents of Asia heard the word. And, but not all of the results were good. There were some people that mocked Paul. There were some that opposed him, that reviled him, that beat him. Some were stubborn and continued in unbelief and even spoke evil of the way or sought to contradict the word. But throughout Acts chapter 17 and 19, Paul is reasoning from the scriptures regularly. He's sharing the good news. It's just overflowing out of him. The results were mixed, but I would argue that what Paul is doing is what you and I, if we are followers of Christ, have been called to do. So I, as I was studying this week, a question came to my mind, do I reason from the scriptures? And it's easy to say yes because of what I often do here on a Sunday morning. But if you take Sunday morning aside, do I reason from the scriptures? Do I talk to people and share the good news of Jesus? Would people say that that's my custom, that I do it regularly? And so kind of question posed to you as well, do you reason from the scriptures? Do you take the word and hand it to people? And then as I was thinking through this, I thought, you know, what, what is it that makes Paul do this? Like why, what characterizes a person who, who would reason from the scriptures regularly as a custom? Like are there traps that they somehow avoided? Are there truths that they believe and lies that they don't believe? And this week I came up with three things that I think characterize those people that reason from the Scriptures. I think they're things that characterized Paul in this, and I think anyone who lives a life that seriously, as a custom, regularly, often shares the Word with people. Three things that characterize them. Number one is this, I think that they do not believe the common lies of the enemy. You know, like, if we really look through the Word, we can see that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. We don't like to talk about the fact that there's an enemy, but the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The enemy is like a roaring lion seeking to devour. We can read of the parable of the sower, and there's seed that's scattered, and the birds come, and they try to snatch it up. And we can see that that's what the enemy often does. He speaks lies to us. When there is truth that's put out there, he wants to snatch it up. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that no temptation has ceased you but what is not common to man. What that means is this, is every single one of us hears lies. And oftentimes it's a very similar lie. And for us, we hear these lies, and I think when it comes to being someone who reason from the Scriptures, there's common lies that the enemy tells us. Lies like, that's not your gifting. And I think what happens is, you know, we'll be like, you know, I've done some spiritual gift inventories and, and my gift is like a gift of helps or a gift of administration or a gift of service. And so we think, you know, I probably don't need to really reason with the scriptures. I don't really need to give people the word because that's not my gifting. 
But I think that there's a major difference between calling and gifting. Gifting is what helps you with the calling. But gifting does not prevent, diminish, or change the calling. If we are in Christ, then we are called to go and make disciples. We are called to be known by our love. So we can't just say, well, it's not my gift. Like, you know, it's not my gifting to love people. Well, if Christ is in you, then, it, then it's your calling. So your gifting helps you with the calling. It does not prevent, diminish, or change the calling. And all of us who are in Christ are called to make disciples, to be his witnesses, to be known by our love. But the enemy also will speak some other lies like, well, you know, it's not my personality. You know, I'm kind of more of a quiet, reserved, behind-the-scenes type. I'm an introvert. And, and that job of reasoning with the Scriptures, that job of telling people about the Word, that's for the extroverts. I don't want to, to minimize how even God created you and the personality that you have. But your personality type doesn't dictate the calling. The calling dictates how you live out with your personality. And so it's not true to say, well, it's not, I'm, it's not my personality, so I don't have to. It's, okay, maybe the personality, maybe the gifting that you have, God is going to help you figure out how it is that you then reason from the Scriptures. People who reason from the Scriptures don't believe the common lies of the enemy. One of them is, I'm not eloquent. I don't really know what I would say. I can tell you, I wrestle with this one all the time. Even doing this, week in and week out, there are often times where I think, why in the world does this church allow me to continue to come up here and talk? I'll feel inadequate. And, or, or when I'm out talking to somebody who doesn't know anything about Jesus, and I'll think, I should tell them something. What should I tell them? I don't know what I tell them. I, I, don't, I don't know what I should say. And rather than just like going to the Lord and saying, God, give me what to say, I, I, I wrestle with this lie that I'm not eloquent. I don't really know what to say. And Moses himself struggles with this. All the way back in the Old Testament, Moses, who, who leads all of Israel out of Egypt and into the Promised Land, he says to God in, in, in Exodus chapter 4, Moses says, O Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. But then God says to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth, and I will teach you what to say. Those who reason from the Scriptures, they don't believe the common lies that they're not eloquent, that they don't know what to say. And Verse 13 of chapter 4 of Exodus, you know what, Paul, or what, what um, Moses says? He says, God, please send someone else. Have you ever said that? There's that neighbor, there's that coworker, there's that family member, and you're like, yeah, but God, just send somebody else. I think that it happens when we're believing a lie that we're not eloquent, that we wouldn't know what to say. We don't have to know what to say. God will give us what to say. I think another lie that people can believe, a common lie, a lie that I know I myself have believed is, well, this is the Apostle Paul. Like, this guy is like the greatest missionary ever. 
He's like the apostle. He's the guy who, who God used to write a majority of the New Testament. Like, that's totally a different thing than me, just in my job, my everyday life, in my family. I, I couldn't do that. And what happens, we believe this lie that there's a difference between someone who's a professional at sharing their faith and us. And then we begin to think, well, that's, that's the pastor's job. I'll just get somebody to go to church and the pastor will tell them this stuff. I don't have to really tell them anything. But, but God calls all of us, if we are followers of Jesus, to share the truth. The thing is, is what Paul does, he's not this overwhelming, amazing person. He's the chief of all sinners. He's simply a guy who plants seeds, waters them, and allows God to give the growth. Paul is just a guy who's compelled to tell the good news of Jesus, and the good news is just overflowing out of him. That's, that's all that Paul really is. And, and if you ever spend much time with Bob Neubauer, you'll hear him say this. He says oftentimes that um, God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And that is exactly what happens in the life of Paul. But, but we'll read this, and we can struggle with these lies that I'm not eloquent, I'm, I wouldn't know what to say, it's not my gifting, it's not my personality, but those who reason from the Scriptures, they don't believe the common lies of the enemy. Number two, they do not complicate what it means to reason from the Scriptures. This one, man, I, I can struggle with so much. Like I think that it's so much more complicated than what it really is. But really, what Paul is doing is he's, he's taking the Word and he's sharing it with them. Who is Jesus? And he's sharing it with them. What he's doing is he's, he's giving the simple truths of the Word. He's giving them the milk of the Word. He's telling them the message of the cross. And if we read back through Acts chapter 17 and 19, we can see different ways that, that Paul does that. We can see things that he says. He, he tells people that Christ suffered and he died. Like, can, can, can I just say, this Jesus suffered and he died? He says, Christ rose. He says, you know, it was God who made the world. He says to the people, you know, God is in control. Like, I may not fully understand that. I may not fully grasp that. I may not always like that, but God is in control. What he tells people is that, that people were made so that we could seek God. He tells people that there's a kingdom he tells people that there will be a coming judgment. He tells people that God is not far off from people. He tells them about repentance. What he does is not necessarily very profound. He, he gives them the word. He doesn't overcomplicate it. What you can see is that he plants seeds and he waters them. In fact, Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 2.4, in my speech, he's saying like when I came to you, my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but they were a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. What he's saying is, I gave the Word, and I let the Spirit do what the Spirit does. In 1 Thessalonians 1.5, he says, The gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit with full of conviction. Again, I gave you the Word, and I let the Spirit do what the Spirit does. He knew what his job was, and he knew what his job was not. He didn't try to overcomplicate it. He knew that his job, Paul thinks, and, and anyone who reasons from the Scriptures knows, my job is to love people, to live life before them, and to share the Word with them, both in word and in deed. That's it. My job is not to change people's hearts. 
My job is not to, to make them like the, the, the message. My job is not to convict them. My job is to make sure that I tell them every single thing about the entire Bible or I've done something wrong. But those who reason from the Scriptures, they share the simple truths of the Word, the milk of the Word, the message of the cross, and they do it because they know Isaiah 55, 11 says that God's Word will not come back void. The reason why you can share all these different things with people, but if you give them the Word, the Word has power. And the Word can do something because it never comes back void. And I don't really understand this, but in John chapter 1 it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it goes on in verse 14, and it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So what the, what the Bible is saying is that the Word is the same as God, and that God is the same as Jesus, and the Word is the same as Jesus. It doesn't really make any sense to me, but what that means is if we give somebody the Word, we're giving them God. What happens is if, if, if someone is confronted with the Word, they're confronted with God. If we sit before the Word, we're sitting before Jesus. It's this beautiful and amazing thing. And so those who reason from the Scriptures, they want to take the Word and give it to someone, knowing that it will not come back void, knowing 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scriptures God breathed that's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training righteousness. So if we give someone the Word, what we're doing is we're giving them something that is able to teach them, to rebuke them, to correct them, to train them, to equip them. Ephesians 4.12 says that the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. So if we give someone the Word, what we're doing is we're giving them something. We're giving them something that's living and active. We're giving them something that's a sword. And it goes on, it says that it discerns thoughts and intentions, exposes thoughts and patterns. When we give someone the Word, the Word goes into them. It's like a pinball machine, right? I love pinball machines. I'd sit there and play for a long time. I had a buddy who had one, and I always thought it would be so cool if my parents bought me one. They never did, because um, they knew that was stupid. But my friend had a pinball machine. We'd sit there and play it for hours, but what would happen is you'd, you'd kick the ball out, right? You'd just boom, and then when the ball's kicked out, after you boom, it, it bounces around. It hits everything, and when we give someone the word, we're putting something that's living and active inside of them, and it can bounce around, and it can do things that we could never do. And so those who reason from the Scriptures, they realize the, the importance of the Word. They don't try to overcomplicate what it means. You just simple, simply give them the Word and allow the Word to do the work. We, you give them the Word and you pray and you let the Spirit take it from there. We know that the Word is a light to our feet, a lamp to our path, and so we want to give people something that can light their path. We know that the Word bears witness about Jesus. The Word is where we can taste and see that the Lord is good. It's what brings us hope. It was written for our instruction. It exposes sin. The Word remains forever. And even what 1 Peter 1.23 says, the Word is what causes us to be born again. So what Paul is doing is he's not overcomplicating it. He's giving people the Word, and he's praying, and he's letting the Spirit do the work. He's planting seeds. He's watering it. He's allowing God to give the growth. He's doing that to all these different people. And so those who reason from the Scriptures, they're, they're willing to take the Word and give it to their kids, to their coworkers, to their neighbors, to their friends, to their family, to the people at the grocery store or the delivery person. Nowadays, you just call and del they deliver your groceries. You just, the delivery person try to be nice and loving and word and deed and show them Jesus. Or the or click list or servers at a restaurant. They, they share with everyone all the time about the Word. 
So people that reason from the scriptures, they don't believe common lies of the enemy. They don't overcomplicate what it means to reason from the scriptures. And number three, the beauty and the simplicity of the gospel has penetrated them deeply. That's right. Amen. The beauty and the simplicity of the gospel has penetrated them deeply. Like if we, if we read the Bible from the very beginning, God creates everything, it's perfect, and, and then sin comes in the equation. And after that, every single person that is ever born is born a sinner. Every single person that is born is born wanting and needing control. Those of you with young kids, you're like, yep. There's a guy, um, Tony Evans. This is probably a very politically incorrect joke that I'm going to tell, but it wasn't me who said it. It was Tony Evans. Tony Evans said, kids are born with hell in them, and so it's a parent's job to knock the hell out of them. <laughs> but there's something that's true. Like when you watch a baby, you can even see that there is a sin nature. We're born wanting our own way. We're born wanting to write our own rules, and we're born wanting to write our own consequences if we break those rules. There is sin in the equation. And because there is sin, and because God is holy, he can't be around sin. It leads to separation. But God is loving, and because God is loving, that while we were his enemies, he sent Jesus. While we had no value, as Romans 3.12 says, while we were worthless, Christ sent Jesus for us. And I heard it this way this week that I loved. God didn't love us because we had value, but because he loves us, we have value. But Jesus is, God is also just so sin had to be punished. It couldn't just be forgiven. If sin could have just been forgiven, then there's no need of the cross. But sin couldn't just be forgiven because God is just. And so what happens, Colossians 2.14 says this, that Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He traded places with us. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 is that God made him who had no sin be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. To say it another way, it's this. Is God, Jesus, in flesh became sin so that I could become a son. Jesus became sin so that you could become a son or a daughter of his. The thing is, is that people who reason from the scriptures, they grasp the beauty of the gospel. It, it just, it's unbelievable. Why would God do that? Why would he see, why would he come and love us when we have no value? And then if, it go, if we go on and we understand that even after I became a Christian, even after I started following Jesus, I still would often turn my back on God. Romans 7, Paul himself, who, 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 who's reasoning from the Scriptures here, you know what he says? He says, I don't do what I want to do, and I do what I don't want to do because sin is living in me. 
Even after we've given our life to Jesus, even after he's died on the cross and he forgave us of our sins and we're in this right relationship with him, the separation is gone. We're not separated anymore. We're with him. We're in him. Even after that happens, we, we turn and we go our own way. And even after that, sin is still in us. It's like, it's like Jesus is on the cross dying for your sin and you walk up to him and you spit on him. Like, imagine that. Imagine that you're, you're standing in the road and a car's about to hit you and someone comes and pushes you out of the way and they get hit by the car and they go down on the ground, they're laying there and you walk over and you just spit on them. But if we're honest, if we're really honest, even after Jesus died on the cross and he rose for our sins and, and we have a relationship with him, even after that happens, we turn our back on him. We go our own way. We don't want to listen to what he has to say. We don't do what we want to do, and we do what we don't want to do, and, and it's because sin is still living inside of us. And Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The beauty of the gospel is what I just said, but I think that the beauty of the gospel goes a step further than that. Because the beauty of the gospel is not just that Jesus came and died for us, but even once you're in a relationship with him and you still choose to go your own way, the beauty of the gospel is this. Even though you're walking up to me and you're spinning on the cross, even though that is happening, you are not cast out. Even though you are doing that, you can still boldly approach the throne of grace. Even though you're doing that, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Even though you are doing that, it is my loving kindness that leads you to repentance. People who reason from the scriptures, the beauty and the simplicity of the gospel has penetrated them deeply. I think of Paul <clears throat> when he first believes. What happens is he immediately goes out and he proclaims Jesus. Immediately. You can see the woman at the well. She meets Jesus and what does she do? She goes to town and she tells everybody about this Jesus. You can see countless stories of that all through Scripture, but what you often see is this, is that the, the good news is just overflowing out of them. The beauty of the gospel is overflowing out of them because the beauty and the simplicity of the gospel has penetrated them deeply. But I think for those who reason from the Scriptures, the beauty of the gospel has penetrated them deeply, but it also continues to do so more and more. Hebrews 5, 11, 14 says this, About this we have much to say, but it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have... Their powers of discernment trained by constant practice distinguish from good and evil. What happens so often, I think, is we believe on Jesus, right? And we turn and go our own way. And what happens is we begin to become dull of hearing. The beauty of the gospel begins to fade. Have you ever had a season of your life where the beauty of the gospel has faded. I can tell you that I have, and 
Oftentimes we become dull of hearing and we, we simply can look like kids. And what, what this text is telling us is in that day and age, in, in the Bible, there were people that were basically just little kids spiritually. They were just running around. They were like little kids on a playground, just arguing over which part of the playground is better. I remember fighting with Chad Walter about whose dad was stronger. We can look like little kids dressed up like grown-ups. Like, have you ever watched a little kid put, up, put on adult clothes? They look stupid. The clothes don't fit them, right? But you know what happens is so often, it, what ha- was happening here is that there were people who were pretending to be grown-ups in the faith, and yet they weren't. What I think that we do in the church is we so often push behavior modification. If you don't, if you don't do drugs and you don't cuss and you don't watch R-rated movies and if you don't have sex before you're married, and we come up with all these just list of things. If you don't do these things, then you're a good person. But what that really is, is we're wanting behavior change and not necessarily heart change. And so what we're doing is we're saying, hey, dress up your little kid in the faith, but dress up like an adult and pretend. But you know what? I want to see heart change in me. What Paul is saying in this text is there should be heart change. Not just behavior modification, but in that day and age, there were people who were kids in the faith that were dressing up like grown-ups. There were people who were kids that were too busy trying to fit in and be cool and impress other people. Like kids... They were distracted by the new toy of the day. As a kid, I remember thinking that this life would go on forever. Like, a school year took forever. And now it's like, it's 2019 in like how many days? Like, I remember thinking how unbelievable it was going to be that it was going to be 2,000. Like, it just goes. But with children, they just think that there's plenty of time. I think what Paul is saying in our text, I think what what Hebrews is saying is that life goes quick. That we should make the most of every opportunity that this life is a mist, it's a vapor. And I think what happens though is if the beauty of the gospel is not continuing to penetrate you deeper and deeper and deeper, then it's fading. I think there's only two directions. You know, like if you go jump in a pool, it's very hard to stay at the same depth. You either are going to go up or you're going to go down. I think it's the same thing spiritually, that the the beauty and the simplicity of the gospel is either going to penetrate your heart deeper and deeper and deeper, or it's going to be getting to faith. Those that reason from the scriptures, the beauty and the simplicity of the message is penetrating them deeply, and it's continuing to do so more and more. What I think happens slowly in our lives, what happens slowly in the lives of the people all around in this text are that idols begin creeping in. We can all all say that. We've, We've had that time where that's happened. What happens is we get to a point to where we kind of maybe have an idol of people pleasing. I'd rather people like me than me tell them about God. We can have an idol of comfort. I'd rather be comfortable 
than to be with people that are different than me. I can have an idol of self. I'd rather do what I want to do when I want to do it than listen to what God wants. What happens is the beauty of the gospel fades. What happens, as Revelations 2.4 says, is that we've lost our first love. What Revelation, Revelation 3.15 says is that we've become lukewarm. But those that reason from the Scriptures, it just overflows out of them. And the reason it overflows out of them is because it's so beautiful and amazing and it's penetrated their heart and it's continued to penetrate their heart deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. I'm going to wrap up. I'm going to wrap up with an important question, a simple truth, and then I'm going to talk about next week. So three quick things. It should probably only take another 45 minutes. Just kidding. Question. Do you see the beauty in the simplicity of the gospel? Does it overwhelm you? Does the fact that you had no value, you were what the Bible called as worthless and God still loved you, that he sent his son to die on the cross, that he took places with you, and that does that, does that boggle your mind? He doesn't keep a record of sin. If it blows your mind, if the beauty and the simplicity of that truth penetrates your heart, the good news of Jesus, the word about who he is, is just going to overflow right out of you. Simple truth. In my life, do you know what I've found? I've found that when it doesn't overflow out of me, it's most often because I've become dull of hearing. My ears have become calloused. The beauty of the gospel has faded, and I need to be reminded of the beauty of the gospel. But do you know what else I've found? Is that when I need it the most is when I want it the least. You begin to just slowly turn from the Lord in your mind and in your heart. You begin thinking of things that you wish that you could do, but you're not supposed to do because you're a Christian, and you're, you're constantly thinking of these things, and what's happening is you need to be reminded of the good news of Jesus so much, but you want it so little. That's what happens in my life is that when, when I need the word the most is when I want it the least. And it's like I'm fearful that I'm going to open up the word and I'm going to be confronted with his anger, his wrath, his judgment. I'm going to be confronted with condemnation, which shows just how much you need to be reminded of the gospel. You need to be reminded so much. The reason why you need that word in that moment is so you can be reminded that even though you're walking over and speeding on the cross, he's still looking up at you saying, I still love you and I'm still going to do this. If I really think on it, it boggles my mind. 
if I really think of it, the beauty and the simplicity of that penetrates my heart. I want to challenge us, um, myself included, I want to challenge us and encourage us and exhort us and even dare us to be like the Bereans who were of more noble character because they would examine the scriptures daily to see if it was so. I, I want to challenge you, I want to dare you, I want to, myself included, that, that we would go to the word and we would look and like, is the beauty of the gospel profound and unbelievable and amazing? Read through the book of John. Is there be, something beautiful and indescribable about Jesus? My prayer is that we would be a people that allow the beauty and the simplicity of the gospel to overwhelm us, to fill us up, and it would just overflow out of us. Those that reason from the scriptures, they do not believe the common lies of the enemy. That it's not their gift, it's not their personality, they're not eloquent, they wouldn't know what to say, they could never be like Paul. Those that reason from the scriptures, they don't overcomplicate it. They simply serve the word and they pray and they let the spirit do the rest. And most importantly, those that reason from the scriptures, that they give the word out. The beauty and the simplicity of the gospel has penetrated them deeply and it's continuing to do so more and more. Next week, I believe the message of why this is so on my heart, why if this was the last sermon I could preach, this is what I would want it to be. The reason why is because I think all of us are prone to believe these lies. I think that all of us overcomplicate it. I think that all of us can struggle with the beauty of the gospel fading. So next week, what I want us to do is what 1 Peter 3.15 says. 1 Peter 3.15 says this, But in your hearts honor Christ, as the Lord, as the Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. I believe that all of us struggle with this. And so what I want us to do next week is to, not to have a sermon, have our mic like we often do, and challenge anyone who is in Christ, anyone who has a relationship with Jesus, I want you to be ready in a short couple minutes to be able to defend the good news of Jesus. What I want you to do is to share the word, to testify, to proclaim about who Jesus is. And I'll say the same thing next week, but I'm going to give three questions. What about Jesus gives you hope? And if you are in Christ, then you should always be ready to give a defense. So next week, I would challenge you to be ready to come up to the microphone in one, two minutes to be able to answer that question of what about Jesus gives you hope? Or a second question, what difference does Jesus actually make? Or third, why would anyone worship someone that died nearly 2,000 years ago? What I, what, what I want to happen is that we bask in the beauty of the gospel this week, that we 
ask the Lord to cross out the lies that we believe with truth. What I want us to do is to be ready next week to simply share the word and let the Spirit do the rest. What I want us to do is to bask in that word so much that even maybe, out, maybe throughout the week that somebody outside of here, we share that same word with. My heart behind this is this. If we can't stand up before our brothers and sisters in Christ who love us and accept us and share this good news, how in the world will we ever share it outside of these walls where we will be hated, slandered, and often misunderstood? Let's pray. God, my heart's cry is that I would understand more and more and more the beauty of the gospel. God, I confess to you that so often the beauty of what you have done and what you are continuing to do and what you will do, it begins to fade. God, I begin to get so focused on the things of this world, I can, I can slowly just turn from you. And the beauty of who you are, of what you've done, fades. God, I pray in my own life that it would penetrate me deeper and deeper and deeper. God, I pray that because of your truth that I would not believe lies. God, I pray that I wouldn't overcomplicate it, but that I would understand the beauty of the gospel so much that it would simply just overflow out of me through my words and through my actions. I pray the same for all of us here. God, I pray that we would be reminded, that we would be confronted with the truth that we were not loved because we had value, but because you have loved us, we have tremendous value. God, overwhelm us, break us, penetrate our hardened hearts, and give us a heart of flesh rather than the heart of stone that we so often have. God, I pray anything that I said that is of you, that it would be like a pinball this week. And followers of you, that it would continue to go on far after today, penetrating our hearts, softening them, exposing the glory of Jesus, exposing the beauty that in a matter of days, we celebrate the fact that Jesus put on flesh and was born and placed in a manger. God, help us to see the beauty and forgive us when we don't. In Jesus' name, amen.